Greetings, everyone. Uh, worshiping here in the sanctuary. Also, many of you other places at other locations of Bethany in different places around the greater Puget Sound region and as well, people who are worshiping online. Thank you for joining us as we consider a new series uh, today, a Lenten series in which we're looking at Jesus' relationship with time, a new series called Seasons, A Time for Everything. So please join me in prayer and then we'll look at this together. Father, we'd like to thank you that we can gather here to listen for your voice and we thank you that indeed you have called us to be people who walk through each season of life with grace as people of hope and wisdom, and I pray that you'd equip us toward that end as we look at your example in the ensuing weeks, as we look today at your relationship with time. May you be our teacher, Father. We thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think that this series on seasons and time is a vital series for us because of the three problems that seem to saturate our culture to a great extent, the problems of anxiety, our inability to be present with one another, and fear. These seem like the three really big deals. Anxiety, have we done enough? Are we smart enough? Are we attractive enough? Are we healthy enough? Do we have enough money? Will we find a spouse? Or if we're married, can we be happy with our spouse? Or can we stay happy? Am I in the right job? Is God mad at me? Are people mad at me? There are a million questions that create anxiety. Second, we struggle with this lack of presence Because though it's true that the only real moment that we have to live in is the present moment, the reality is that we're often not living in the present moment because in our minds, we're either living uh, with regrets from the past or we're planning something in the future or we're looking at a way to change our situation, get out of the present by solving a problem or escaping from a problem. So we are often not actually present with one another and this is a big deal. And the third thing that saturates our culture as a kind of a pathology is fear. We, have a, we face fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of financial hardship, fear of health challenges, fear of the other, fear of aging, uh, fear of dying, fear of those we love dying, fear of the future. So uh, lots of fears. Fear, anxiety, lack of presence are kind of default modes for our soul. And now along comes Jesus, and he offers us by, by example and by teaching a better way And what we see in this particular text uh, today, by looking at Ecclesiastes and some words from the life of Jesus, we see three values that Jesus embraces that enable him to live a life freed from this anxiety and lack of presence and fear that are so common uh, for the rest of us. And so we want to look at these three values and see how these values will frame our time together in this series and offer some examples so that we can live lives of hope. So the three values that we're called to embrace are impermanence, a commitment to living in the presence, and those two values lead to the third value, the experience of peace. Embrace impermanence, live in the present, experience peace. This is where we're going in our time together in the text today. And so we begin with this principle of embracing impermanence, because when we look at Jesus, if you look at the kind of, if you fly over his life, look at the whole thing, you realize Jesus experienced everything. He experienced popularity and the hatreds of the crowds. He experienced uh, multitudes and isolation, radical hospitality, and nights spent alone in the wilderness. He enjoyed feasts. He fasted. He enjoyed weddings. He wept at the death of friends. In one story, He determines that he's going to stay alone while his disciples go to Jerusalem. And then instead of choosing solitude as he's planned, he goes to this festival. And in another instance, the crowds gather at a house to hear him teach and be touched by his power. And he sneaks out the back door and leaves the city. Uh, So Jesus has all these different moments 
and all these wide varieties of, of experiences. And one of the things that we learn just by looking at the life of Jesus is that no single moment defines his entire life. He's not always popular. He's not always unpopular. He's not always with people. He's not always alone. He's not always full. He's not always hungry. And this is really, actually, a very important principle because there is, in fact, as we heard read in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there is what? A time uh, for everything. So let's just kind of look at this ground truth as we start this series. The notion that nothing will ever stay the same. I want to quote from one of the Desert Fathers. This is what uh, this man said who kind of fled the city when Christianity became popular because he felt that the popularity of Christianity was polluting Christianity. And so he went on the desert and he prayed and he fasted quite a bit and he wrote, and this is one of the things he says, during grief, wait for a peaceful dispensation and during a peaceful dispensation, wait for sorrow. In this temporary life, peace and sorrow are experiences that will alternate. And the holy people of God are not free from these experiences. You want to find some new path to avoid hard experiences and experience only peace, this will never happen, end quote. I think there's tremendous wisdom in this. And the reason this matters is because our culture has adopted kind of this default mindset that uh, there's something to go after, kind of this status, and once we acquire the status to invest our energy in kind of protecting this status. So if I like my situation, I'm trying to protect it. If I don't like my situation, I'm trying to change my situation and move into a situation that I do like. So I'm either anxious about losing what I have or I'm fearful of not gaining what I want. Either way, I'm missing the chance to live in the moment because I'm going after something and trying to hold on to it. So... Jesus is trying to teach us through his life what the wise preacher in Ecclesiastes said, that there's a time for everything. And he offers a profound demonstration of this. He not only gives us a sense of the reality of impermanence, he talks about impermanence. So, for example, in John chapter 2, there's a wedding, people are out of wine. We'll look at this in a couple of weeks. But when his mom says, hey, uh, fix this, Jesus says, this is not the right time for me to fully reveal my glory. And then in John 4, he says, though it has not been the time in the past, now is the time for a new way of worshiping. Now is the, the hour has come, is what he said. The hour has come and is now here when we can worship in spirit and in truth. Before it was this way, now it's that way. So that for Jesus, we see by example over and over and over again that there's a time for everything. As I've already said, Jesus knows times of hunger because we know he fasted. He knows times of feasting because we know he was accused of going to too many parties. He knows times of solitude because he got up early in the morning and went alone to the mountains. He knows times of gigantic crowds of people because we see him teaching to the multitudes on all kinds of occasions. He knows joy as we see when he's spending time with children. He knows anger as we see when he's spending time with religious leaders. He knows seasons of popularity when people try to make him king. He knows seasons of being hated at least three times in the, in the Gospels. Different crowds try to kill him. And the first two times when uh, people try to kill him, he escapes because literally, this is what Jesus says, his hour had not yet come. This is not the time to die. And so he escapes. And then the third time, he actually allows himself to be arrested. And he says, as we'll see toward the end of this series, this is the hour of darkness. 
There's an hour of light, an hour of darkness, an hour of escaping death, an hour of embracing death, an hour of being healed, an hour of being sick. There is a time for everything, right? And so just by way of application, it's vital that you and I begin to embrace the reality there's a time for everything. But in fact, in most of our culture, we don't embrace this. Our default seems to be, in my estimation, that we would say it this way. There's a time for youth, but not a time for aging. Old people are tucked away out of sight. There's a time to be born, uh, but not a time to die. We don't like to talk about death. We don't like to visit death. We don't like to think about death. There's a time for laughter, but not a time for mourning. There's a time for companionship, but not a time for loneliness. There's a time for CrossFit Healthy and skiing good powder, but not a time for Lyme disease or chemotherapy. There's a time for wealth, but most are more afraid of poverty than death. There's not a time for poverty. So if, if life is kind of this equation here, and you have two sides of the leisure, and you have you know, life and death, health and sickness, wealth and poverty, popularity and rejection, it seems to me that we're obsessed with one side of the ledger at the expense of the other side. And if I'm addicted to one side of the ledger, the focus of my energy becomes this sort of emotional accounting whereby I seek to accrue assets on the good side, and we even call accruing assets on the good side, quote-unquote, the good life. That's the good life. And you want the good life, and subtext, you don't want the bad life. And ironically... What I've discovered as a pastor is that people who ultimately embrace both sides of the ledger will tell you both sides are vital. God has as much or more to teach you through sickness as through health, as much through loss as gain, as much through loneliness as companionship, as much through fasting as feasting, as, as, as much through death as life. So don't try and build a life on just one side of the ledger. For many reasons, first of all, peace will elude you, uh, elude you. But second, and this is hugely significant, you can try and build a life on one side of the ledger, and I'm just going to tell you this, you will fail. <laughs> because all of us will experience illness, loss, setback, loneliness, hunger, defeat, antagonism, confrontation. That's just the way the world works. And, and, and so it's, a, it's vital, if we're going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, that we change our attitude toward the ledger, and we're going to see that both sides have value, and we learn to embrace both sides. I have this beautiful picture of my mom uh, in, in the 40s, when she was 20 years old. Uh, she, she got married, she married my dad, and they moved to Colorado. He was stationed in Colorado in the war. He taught um, pilots how to repair and used the guns on the B-52 bombers. That's what he did. He was a teacher in World War II in Colorado. So this beautiful picture of my mom uh, on a frozen pond in Colorado ice skating. And she's probably 25 years old. And I love that picture because this is her in a way I never knew her. This is her in her youth. This is her with a big broad smile. This is her with eyes filled with hope. But she had a hard life. Uh, this picture was before her pregnancy. But in her pregnancy, when she gave birth to a child, she nearly bled to death and lost the baby after one day of life. 
and needed to have a surgery that would prevent her from ever having children. <laughs> and this picture was before her husband contracted numerous bouts of pneumonia that would render his lungs so weak that he'd end up in the hospital every year. I mean, when I was a kid, every year my dad went to the hospital with pneumonia. It was just a thing, and, and I kind of knew and expected it every winter. But then when he went when I was 17 to the hospital with pneumonia, uh, he died at the age of 53. Uh, so my mom knew the loss of a child, knew the loss of the capacity to bear children, knew, knew the loss of, of her husband, ultimately later the loss of my sister before my mom died at the age of 95. And so, again, if you look at this ledger, my mom's side is full, as I think is everybody's side. But here's the thing I want you to see, and this is just as important. There's this side of the equation already, but there's this picture over here of her ice skating, and this is a picture of joy. And there's pictures over here on this side of the, of the equation, uh, right after I was adopted, right after my sister was adopted, and, and letters from my grandparents, her parents, saying how much they loved us kids as, as adopted kids. And there's just this treasure trove of amazing memories. Our family, baseball games in San Francisco, laughter around the table at my grandmother's house in the Redwoods, just south of San Francisco in Santa Cruz. My parents had good friends. I remember this. They bowled together every Monday night, all her friends and, and, and uh, uh, my, my mom and, and my dad, they bowled, and then they, they'd go out to eat. They had friends over. Every holiday, we had a feast. Always spare ribs. Always homemade ice cream. I remember buying, uh, dad came home with a brand new color TV. We were the last people on our block to get a color TV. And this is the only time in my life I remember my dad saying, and he kind of pounded him. He says, we are not going to church tonight. I couldn't believe it. I said, why? He says, because Wizard of Oz is on, and I hear that the second half is in color. I want to watch it. And so I re- that's a great memory for me, right? So uh, all these things are in the equation. Weddings, graduations, graduations with honors from us kids that made our parents proud, loss and gain, intimacy, loneliness, health, sickness, life, death. This is what a life is, do you see? And each of us must learn then that there is a time for everything. Because if I can accept both sides of the ledger, then both sides of the ledger are going to teach me. And and to the extent that I can embrace both sides, I will become a person of hope and wisdom in this world. But if if I am just absolutely determined to only live on one side of the ledger... My life's going to be filled with anxiety and fear, and I will never be able to pull it off. I will never be able to avoid all suffering anyway. I need to learn to embrace. One of my favorite books is a book entitled An Interrupted Life by a young girl, Eddie Hellison. She never intended that it would be a book. It's her diary. Uh, um, a Dutch Jew in her 20s, writing from 1941 until her death in one of the prison camps in 1943. And as you read her, her diary, you, you realize you're watching her family disappear before she's ultimately arrested herself and eventually she's killed in the camp. What I love about her diary is it's filled with both, it's powerfully filled with both sides of the equation. She talks about uh, seeing neighbors taking, taken away, uh, getting arrested and taken away. And then, and then she says in the, in the very next page, we woke up this morning and my friend had found a pound of coffee. 
and we, cele- we celebrated this coffee. We sat, we looked at it, we smelled it, and then we, and then we, we, uh, we ate, we drank, we, we drank the coffee. And it's just this great joy in a cup of coffee and this great mourning at the loss. And I just want to read a couple of things from, from uh, Eddie's diary because she wrote, because she was a, a, a determined to enjoy the gifts that God had given her without pretending that life was easy. Tremendous loss, but I'm going to enjoy the gifts as well. This is what she writes, quote, I know and share the many sorrows, as many as a human can experience, but I don't cling to the sorrows. I let them pass through me like life itself, as a broad eternal stream, and life continues on. Embracing sorrow, she continues, I've learned is the way of wisdom. This is very important for all of us, I think. And they're literally writing from the camps near the end of her diary. The reality of death has become a definite part of my life. Uh, My life has, so to speak, though, been extended by death. And by my looking death in the eye and accepting it, by accepting destruction as part of life, and listen, no longer wasting my energies on fear and trying to avoid death, no longer wasting my energies on the refusal to acknowledge its inevitability. Then I love this. It sounds paradoxical, but by excluding death from our life, we can't live a full life. When we admit death into our life, we complete and enlarge and enrich our life. This is significant. Can we embrace not only life, but death, not only not only health, but sickness, not only gain, but loss. Jesus was a master of this, I think. He was not addicted to pleasure or popularity, but neither did he run from pleasure or popularity. He went to parties and enjoyed parties. Uh, When he was popular, he met with people and accepted them in their season. On the other hand, he wasn't afraid of solitude or hunger or confrontation. He was able to live the entire spectrum, and I'm envious of that. I would suggest that in our kind of goal-oriented world, there's this land of pleasure and power out there, and some of us are here, and it's like life's a mountain to climb, and we're going after it. And subtly, we begin to think, life will begin if I can get to the summit. It's a terrible way of thinking, because now I'm not living. I'm waiting to begin living as soon as I reach my goals. And then if I do reach my goals, I fear losing what I've gained. What if instead we live our lives lives this way? What if instead we fan our gifts into flame, we, we, we develop intimacy with Jesus, and we practice gratitude, and we allow life to unfold, recognizing that if we allow life to unfold, there will be a time for everything, a season for everything, an hour for everything. This poet, Rainer Rilke, um, he writes about this. One of my favorite poems, uh, this is what he says. God speaks to each of us as he makes us. And these are the words we dimly hear. You, sent out beyond your recall, go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like a flame. Make big shadows I can move in. And then listen, this is significant. Let everything happen to you. Beauty and terror. Just keep going. No emotion is final. 
don't let yourself lose me. That's huge. Let everything happen to you. No emotion is final. No experience is final. We're invited to embrace impermanence. And this, ironically, can allow us to fully appreciate each moment for what it is on both sides of the ledger. And then the second value that Jesus speaks of, he offers his call to live in the present moment, right? And uh, we'll see this as we see some examples from Christ. But I'm just going to note here at the outset, acceptance of the present moment uh, as a value enables us to live fully in the present moment. And if I'm able to live fully in the present moment, my life becomes then aligned with my calling because in Matthew 6, Jesus tells all of us that his desire is that we live a life free from anxiety. Do you remember this? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6? Be anxious for nothing. He says, don't be, don't be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be anxious. And this word anxiety in the Greek language is this word merimna, which simply means to be divided. And being divided means, among other things, that I am in a time-space continuum in a particular place, but though I'm there in my body, I'm not there. All of us have experienced this. I, I know we have, right? Have you ever been uh, at a party and someone's talking to you and then uh, as you're talking to them, you can tell they're not actually listening to you because there's a conversation going on over there that they'd rather be involved in? Has that happened to any of you? Like it's happened to me, actually, I'd say many times, and I've been guilty of that very thing. Speaking with someone and thinking, man, I really would rather be speaking with somebody else, but I'm here so I'm going to endure this moment rather than be fully present, right? That's an example of being divided. That's merimnao. I can be physically present, but emotionally uh, in, a, in a different geography. I can be physically present, but emotionally in a different time. I can be thinking about the future or thinking about the past. Divided means we're in this place, but rather than being in this place, we are wishing we were somewhere else, so we're disengaged. We're wishing we were other people, we were with other people, or we were wishing we were at the ocean, or we're wishing this event was over, whatever it is. So Matthew 6, 34, here's Jesus. Don't be anxious. And in particular, Jesus says, don't be anxious about tomorrow, because tomorrow will take care of itself. In other words, the only place in the universe where you can live a full life is this exact moment right now. There is no other moment. The future does not exist. The past does not exist. The moment in which you can embody hope and mercy and joy and hospitality and love and wisdom, the only moment you have, boom, it's this one. And if you don't allow yourself to be fully present in this one, you will miss the life for which you're created. So what it says for Jesus is it creates such a spaciousness in his life that we see him, I see him in the Gospels, as fully present every single moment. And, and when someone is fully present, it's not that time stands still, but it, it's, that, it's that people are able to operate with this sense of focus and attuned to their environment in such a way that 
they're open to disruption. And people who are open to disruption are people who are fully present in the moment because they're allowing their lives to uh, respond to whatever is there that was maybe unanticipated, right? So in Luke chapter 8, verses 43 through 45, there's this woman, and she's been bleeding for 12 years. Nobody had healed her. And she sees Jesus, and there's a big crowd around, and she thinks to herself, you know what? If I could just touch his uh, shirt, I'd be healed. And so uh, as he's passing by, she kind of breaks through the crowd, apparently, and she touches his shirt. And Jesus says, he stops, he says, who touched me? Well, all the disciples... They're like this, and they'll quote. Now, here's what Peter says. He says, Master, there's a multitude pressing against you. Like, what do you mean, who touched you? Everybody touched you. But here's Jesus. Nope. I know that someone touched me in a different way than everybody else touched me. Because someone touched me who needed healing. And Jesus' awareness of that is, is stunning to me because it tells me that he's so in the moment that he's, he's sensitive to this particular touch, right? And this means that he is fully present with all that's going on around him, not living in the future, not living in the past, not living in Jerusalem when he's in Nazareth. He is where he is, and he's there fully. I'd suggest that there are activities in our world that require full presence. Like, there's, some, there's some things you just can't do unless you are 100% focused on that thing. I don't know if any of you saw uh, the movie about Alex Honnold climbing uh, El Cap without uh, any ropes called Free Solo. I mean, I find climbing with ropes terrifying. I cannot imagine climbing without ropes 3,000 feet. But what you learn in watching that is though he was physically prepared long before the time that he actually climbed, he was waiting for the moment when he was what? Like mentally prepared to be fully present. And on the day when he felt like he was mentally prepared, then he went. Why? Because he knew that if he wasn't fully present, he'd die. So it's, it's just vital that we learn to be fully present moment by moment in whatever is going on around us Freed from worry about the future, regret about the past, wishing we were somewhere else. This is where God has you. Embrace it. This is a season God has given you. Embrace it. And actually, when we do this, it, it actually, I think it does actually change the way that we live. Uh, a few years ago, I spoke at a, at a Bible conference. It was a family camp. So I spoke to the adults, and the kids had stuff going on, and we would share meals together in the dining hall down in... Uh, California. And then after the conference was over, a gentleman sent me a letter and he said, uh, I want you to know that uh, I returned to faith but not because of your teaching but by watching you. And he went on, this is what he said. He said, I was so impressed that you spent time learning the names of the staff in the dining hall, what schools they went to, and that you encouraged them. 
And on the last day, you publicly thanked the people who kept the toilets clean and did the dining hall and all that stuff. Now listen, I don't always do that. But that single moment of encouragement to me reminded me of the power of presence. Does this make sense? Like, here, here's a person serving me food. So, I'm not going to think about my message that's in an hour. I want to think about this person serving me food. Who are they? Where did they come from? What are they studying? What do they hope to do with their lives? Is there any way that I can encourage them in this moment? This is the thing. Paul's encouraging us to live that way. This is why he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, uh, whatever you're doing, whether you're eating or drinking, do everything to the glory of God. And I think the only way that we can do whatever we're called to do to the glory of God is to be fully present in whatever it is that we're doing. So it doesn't matter if you're preaching or having a conversation with a coworker, or playing catch with children or taking out the trash or sweeping the floor or changing a diaper or writing music or singing a song or balancing some books or doing your taxes. Whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. And what that means is be fully present in that exact moment because that's the only way that you can glorify God is to, is to be all there. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says it this way. Whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might. <clears throat> in other words, whatever you're doing, be all there, right? Now, the byproduct of living the present moment and embracing impermanence is this third value. We get to experience the value of peace. We get to experience peace. This is what Jesus said in John 14, just before his arrest. He said, my peace I leave with you. And then significantly, this is what he said. My peace is not like the peace of the world. I'm giving you a different kind of peace. So let's make a couple of observations. First, the promise of Christ is this. Christ's life, present in your life, will lead to peace. That's a promise. Jesus said it. However, very important that we understand that the peace that Christ offered us is not like the peace in our world. Because remember, as we've already seen, in our world, we live in a culture that believes that peace is only found on one side of the ledger. So when Jesus says, I leave you peace... He's not saying, hey, follow me and you'll always be healthy, always wealthy, always wise, always popular, always beloved, never lonely. He doesn't say that. Peace is not uh, wealth without poverty, health without illness, popularity without isolation, intimacy without ever being alone, agreeing without ever having hard conversations. No. If that's our view of peace, then we have aversion to all the stuff on the other side of the ledger and then we expend energy avoiding this stuff and, and spend all our time going after stuff on the other side of the ledger. And, and none of that is Jesus' peace. So when Jesus says, I'm leaving you a peace that is different than the world, he exemplifies that peace. Just one chapter earlier, this is what Jesus did. In John chapter 12, Jesus, this, his, he prays. And he says, my soul is troubled. This is Jesus. My soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, Save me from this hour. What's this hour? He has just said, the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, here's Jesus' perspective. I know that within a week, I'm going to die. And I don't want to die. So my soul is troubled. Father, save me from this hour. And then, in the same breath, he says, no. Do I want to be saved from this hour? Yes. But the fundamental answer, no. I came for this hour. This is my hour. So here's Jesus. He wrestles with God. 
He prays. He sweats drops of blood. He knows what's coming. He doesn't want it. But ultimately, Jesus submits and he moves from this side of the ledger. You know, Hosanna, save us now. Let us make you king. He moves from this side of the ledger to execution. The same crowd within a week shouting, crucify him. And Jesus goes there. And listen to this. Therein is peace. Why? Because Jesus is showing us by example, none of us are called to live on one side of the ledger only ever. No. We're called to live in intimacy with Jesus. That's what we're called to do. And therein is peace. And watch this. If I live in intimacy with Jesus, Jesus who lived on both sides of the ledger will also guide me and shepherd me so that I also live on both sides of the ledger. All no popularity, all no disdain. All no health, all no sickness. All no, all, all no acceptance, all no rejection, all no life, all no death, all no heights, all no valleys, all no fullness, all no hunger, all no light, all no darkness. All of it. And, and, and then as I grow older, I'll learn that all of it is a gift. Not easy, but a gift. There's a summer program in Austria and um, this Bible school I teach at it's called Upward Bound and the program ends with a with a like a two day fast and students are out in solitude so they're alone and they're in a little tarp for a shelter I remember chatting with one of the students who shared their testimony at the end of their kind of five week period here, but in particular the end of their solo. <laughs> they, this is what they wrote. They said, this has been life-changing for me because I've experienced glorious feasting and fasting. I've experienced the cold in the cave such that I wanted to die and the heat of the blazing sun above tree line such that I wanted to die. I experienced rain I experienced parched dryness. I experienced new friendships from all over the world. I experienced solitude. And the most transformative moment, this person said in testimony, was when I was shivering in the dark in a cave, second week into this five-week program. And my leader came to me and said, you look cold. And I was expecting a blanket. And I said, yeah, I am cold. I'm cold. And he said, I guess this is your time to be cold. And he walked away. <laughs> we so quickly want to give people a blanket. But I wonder sometimes if we give people a blanket too quickly, if we're not cheating them from a season where God has something profound to teach them. Because in the end, this is what he wrote in his diary he said, I've known all these things, the fasting, the caves, the cold, the heat, the feasting, the friends, the solitude, and I've learned that every season is a gift. And this gives me peace for the future. So I'm going to pray, and as we close today, however you do this in your various locations, my encouragement is that you take a moment, we have here at Green Lake, like prayer books, that you just kind of name, what season are you in? Is this a season of loneliness? Season of sickness? Season of companionship, season of fullness, season of emptiness.
season of hope, season of fear. It's okay. God will meet you in that season. Let's pray. Father, thank you that um, you desire to walk with us through each season. And I pray that you'd shape us even in these weeks ahead to be people who are not afraid to walk with you through every season, but rather who find that in every season we're given the privilege of learning new facets of your character, new facets of our own character, the development of our soul, the shaping and transformation that can only come from living on both sides of the ledger. Would you guide us there, Father? And we'll thank you for the adventure that awaits as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.